Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Olivia Atwater about the first of her Regency-era fairy tales, the novella Half a Soul. Here's my review. When a nasty fairy lord tries to take young Dora's soul, her doting cousin Vanessa fights him off with a pair of iron scissors, but not before he can abscond with half of his desired bounty. As an orphan, Dora is already disadvantaged. After losing half her soul, her affliction manifests as the inability to feel emotions, which puzzles and angers her judgmental aunt. Dora meets her aunt's hostility with calm fortitude, but her inability to get angry also means she doesn't stand up for herself when she's mistreated. When Dora's aunt decides it's time to present Vanessa to the Ton in London, Vanessa insists that Dora come along, although it's generally accepted that Dora will never find a husband at the advanced age of 21. Dora is left alone at the mansion of her hostess for several days, while Vanessa is taken to fittings and shown around. She decides to defy convention and explore London on her own. While in a mysterious bookstore, she meets the only titled man in London deemed less marriageable than herself, the sneering Lord Sorcier, who specializes in insulting remarks when he's not performing three impossible spells before breakfast. His manner is enough to drive most people away, but Dora doesn't react to his scorn. When circumstances throw them together, they get along amazingly well. In meantime, her meddling aunt and her hostess think they have finally found a match for Dora, the sorcerer's best friend, a military physician who lost an arm and is not deemed a good match for most young ladies because of his injury. Faced with the arrival of romance in her lonely life and the discovery of vexatious injustices in society, Dora will have to sort out who or what could evoke some emotion in her damaged soul. So now I've got Olivia on the air to start us off with a short reading. I've got Olivia on the show now. Um, hi, I'm Olivia Atwater. Yeah, no, great. So uh, Olivia's agreed to start us off with a short reading. So this is from Half a Soul, which is the first book in the Regency fairy tales. And uh, I am not an English narrator, and I will not even attempt it. So (laughs) uh, we get the Canadian accent instead, everybody. Oh, little girl, the voice sighed. How like your mother you look. Dora turned her head curiously, wiggling her bare toes in the cold water before her. The man behind her had appeared quite out of nowhere, and surely there had to be magic involved, because his long white coat was unstained by his surroundings, and his eyes were the fairest shade of pale blue that she had ever seen before. Being an imaginative little girl, Dora was not surprised to note that his ears were very gently pointed at the tips, but she was very surprised to see that he was wearing at least four jackets of different cut and color, all layered carelessly atop one another. I don't look a thing like my mother, Goodman Elf, Dora informed him matter-of-factly, as though tall, handsome elves addressed her every day of her life. Auntie Frances says that mother's hair was lighter than mine, and that she had brown eyes instead of green, 
The elfin man gave Dora a kind smile. You humans always miss the most important details, he said. It's not your fault, of course, but your mother's soul and yours are of the same bright thread. I spotted the resemblance in an instant. Dora pursed her lips consideringly. Oh, she said, I suppose that makes sense. Well, were you one of mother's friends, Goodman Elf? Alas, the elf told her, I was not. Once she may have called me such, but she later changed her mind in a manner most abrupt. His unnatural blue eyes fixed upon Dora, and she felt a strange shiver go through her. You have also been very impolite, firstborn child of Georgina Ettings, he said. I am no Goodman elf. Indeed, you should address me as your lordship or Lord Hollowvale, for I am the Marquis of that realm. You can tell that I am important, for I am wearing many expensive jackets. Dora narrowed her eyes at the elf. At first, it had been quite a delight to meet a real-life fairy, but she was now beginning to suspect that she would be much happier crossing the creek and climbing her tree. I had no way of knowing your title, Dora sniffed, and I have never heard of Hollowvale anyway. If it's a real place, then it is far outside His Majesty's domain, and therefore of no consequence here. Those pale blue eyes blazed with ice. The water at Dora's feet grew even more chilly than before, and she pulled her toes up out of the creek in a hurry. Do you not know what happens to impolite young children who wander in the woods? Firstborn child of Georgina Ettings, Lord Hollowvale asked Dora in a quiet, dangerous voice. And it goes on from there. <laughs> and it becomes rather more traumatic rather than less. <laughs> it starts off kind of fun. She's in the woods. She meets an elf. But it ends with him demanding her soul. So uh, her cousin Vanessa, who I reference in uh, my review, shows up. She chases him off. And after that, Dora is never the same. Uh, if Dora was in modern times instead of in Regency England, she would have, I believe, what psychologists call a blunted effect because she acts in a way that would suggest depersonalization. That's often happens to people who undergo significant traumas. And in the alternative world, shamans will speak of traumas as shattering our unity, and a part of us is left behind in the shadows to be retrieved. So could we say that the theft of half of her soul is a metaphor for the after effects of trauma? Um, it, it can be a metaphor for a lot of things, in fact, and um, it was definitely meant to be a metaphor for neurodivergence in general, of which, you know, trauma falls into that camp. Mm -hmm. um, I based Dora off of um, both uh, some of my own experiences and, and some of my autistic friends. Um, I, uh, in fact, writing Dora was how I found out I am autistic. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, but um, I also experienced, I went through a period in my life where I had um, very intense panic attacks, uh, mm -hmm. which would lead to um, moments of, of 
derealization and um, and depersonalization, where where kind of that feeling of of not being quite within yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you can definitely see some of the scenes in the book draw on those experiences, both her her uh, moments of of blunted effect and um, and the feeling that she's not quite in her own body or or um, um, n- not quite all there. Um, those are things that that I, I have gone through. Thankfully, I, I have moved on mostly past those panic attacks, but it was a very scary time in my life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us and with uh, the public. Might help some other people as well to have their experience depicted in a way that they can relate to. Well, it, and it was, you know, um, it was important to me to make this book very uh, light, uh, mm-hmm. despite dis, dis, despite a lot of the, the darker stuff in it. Um, I very consciously took a, a more whimsical tone, and I made sure that there was plenty of warmth in there. And, and um, uh, I guess uh, the way I like to put it is, um, you know, making it a fantasy and, and adding a bit of chocolate on top makes it go <laughs> down better. <laughs> well, speaking about making things kind of light and fun, Lord Hollowell is really a horrible person, but you also make him kind of funny because here he is wearing multiple jackets because they are expensive, and so he feels he's even better wearing, showing all his jackets at once. And Lord Hollowell is very proud of himself. He believes he's a good man, even though we as readers understand that he's, or a good fairy, (laughs) we (laughs) understand that he's not of good character because he has absolutely no respect for others. And I wondered, even though he's a fairy, wasn't he in a way a reflection of Regency era England where poor people were considered responsible for their own misfortune and treated harshly? And rich people were considered virtuous just because they had good standing. Um, absolutely. Um, so half a soul is, uh, though it's not its primary selling point, it is a satire. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, fairies in half a soul are meant to be a, a satirization of the English nobility uh, and those attitudes that you're talking about. Uh, and in fact, of course, it, it was not restricted just to the Regency era. There is a through line in in British history as a whole of really assuming that the poor have done something wrong and that's why they're poor. Um, uh, the book does get into workhouses later on and um, workhouses were a part of English history for several centuries, if not longer. And there was always a concept associated with them of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor uh, and a, a sense that like they had categories, um, but but they treated them all basically horribly. <laughs> they just treated the undeserving poor even more horribly. Um, and the undeserving poor included, you know, people who um, could not get jobs and it was assumed that they didn't want jobs. Uh, and it included, um, you know, single mothers uh, or, or people who had had children, people who had had children out of wedlock, um, uh, things like that. And it, uh, 
yeah, that attitude has has been very, very prevalent throughout British history. It's it, uh, uh, a lot of people um, b- believe it kind of reached a, a high point in the Victorian era, which is very close to the, the Regency era. Mm-hmm. But it was it, it was still there in the Regency era. It was still very intense. And there were a lot of nasty things going on during the period that led to overcrowding in the workhouses already and to lots of people being in that boat at the same time. Um, but to, to return to the idea of fairies as, as satire, um, it's funny because I, I gave um, Lord Hollowvale the idea of like these, these layered jackets. Um, and there was a, a, a brief trend in Regency fashion of um <laughs> where men wore two jackets at the same time <laughs> which sounds you know hilarious but it's real um it did happen uh and so it's not as far it's not quite as far fetched as it seems i i think it's funny to say that uh that is a somewhat realistic thing you know he's wearing four jackets but in fact there were already men wearing two jackets and it was the same era i i'm not a specialist in history but that was the same era where men wore powdered wigs as well wasn't it um gosh off the top of my head the powdered (laughs) wigs thing you know what's funny is that um i know i researched this Mm -hmm. um but because readers are um regency readers uh do not uh particularly appreciate powdered wigs uh i can't actually tell you off the top of my head whether that's true or not because as an author i would have researched it looked at it and been like uh if this is true uh no one's going to want to read that um <laughs> okay well i just knew that uh, uh people had very ornate art and styles of dress but we'll move on to someone who doesn't like to dress up someone very down to earth despite his magical powers and that's elias de lord sorcier He's, uh, France was the first to have magicians, so I guess that's why he's the Lord Saucier. Uh, he meets Dora, our heroine, and he starts off on a wrong foot with her. Uh, he startles her. It doesn't particularly bother her, but Elias is nasty to her, as he usually is to people. But yet, uh, there are some events after that that begin to draw them together. Describe the process a little bit. Um, yes, well, and you know what? Uh, I will actually specify he does not startle her, which is the uh, the thing that uh, oh, that's interests true. him. Mm-hmm. That's true. Thank <laughs> he, you. He he tries to startle her, and it just doesn't work uh, because she is not startleable. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so Elias um, has uh, had a lot of very bad experiences with both with both fairies and English aristocrats, uh, despite his position. And so he comes, he comes into things, um, assuming, making assumptions uh, about who Dora is and, and what kind of person she is mm-hmm. based on what she looks like. And, and I, by that, I mean the fact that she's wearing, you know, relatively nice clothing. Um, and she is, she is clearly, uh, a, a girl from a family of, I guess you would call it good breeding. Um, and uh, she is, you know, the, the Regency poor relative. So she's she's um, not uh, overly extravagant. But, you know, given given the sheer disparity 
in in the Regency era. She's still on the the uh, the better side of things, mm-hmm. and he assumes that 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 says certain things about her, and he reacts to that very badly, though she doesn't necessarily know that that's the reason. Um, and so yes, they they do kind of get off on the wrong foot, and um, but even then he he does find her interesting in the sense that she can't feel short burst emotions uh and he's already getting a sense for that uh in his first discussion with her because she's just she's she can't she's not getting obviously offended at the things that he says she doesn't get angry she doesn't um uh she doesn't fan herself or get faint when he says awful things um and uh so he he does take a at least a bit of an interest in her and later on, as they interact, um, Dora discovers more about why he may have made those assumptions about her based on the ways that, that he interacts with the rest of the nobility and some of the things that she sees, uh, specifically in the workhouses, that are, are the things that have him upset. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so in a lot of ways, meeting Elias is, is a way of her broadening her worldview and seeing things that she was not necessarily aware of and getting that greater context. Yeah, it was a good thing she finally left the house because everyone just left her to her own devices to sit in a room. <laughs> so you mentioned the workhouses. Uh, Elias is deeply angered by the injustice he sees all around him. And he tries so hard to change things, but he he gets the nobility interested, but yet he feels he's not making much progress. How does he view evil, and how does he cope with the limitations he encounters? So Elias views evil after, uh, you know, there's, there is, in, in fact, a, a character arc for him that starts in, in there's a little novella associated with the book and it's at the end i think i think orbit bundled it in Mm -hmm. fact with the book it's called the lord sorcier and and he starts from the assumption that um he he thinks ah fairies are evil and and um humans are not that's what he starts from and he is very quickly disillusioned (laughs) about that um and he at the point uh where this book begins he has become very jaded and he has come to believe that evil, um, while there are examples of people who who are what you would consider, I suppose, classically evil, there are people who who really are, you know, mustache twirling evil. Most of most of what he considers to be evil is sheer apathy and self interest um, uh, collectively. Uh, because he keeps trying to push and push and push and, and tell people, look, there are these awful things happening and you are, in some sense, responsible for them uh, and you could change them and you just don't want to. Um, and the response that he mostly gets is a big collective shrug, if not people being like, you can't talk about that. That's distressing. Don't talk about that in polite company. Um, and so he gets 
uh, you know, villainized even for talking a- mm-hmm. about these things. Um, and uh, so he's he is uh, in this book. He is right on the verge of burnout. Um, and I suppose what you I think we have we have a term for it, in fact, in the modern era, which would be caregiver burnout. Um, because he does work very hard to try and help people, and he he keeps trying and trying, and it's uh, and failing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he is he is in the middle of trying to solve a, a major problem in the workhouses when the book begins, and he keeps failing, and it's weighing very heavily on him, and he is lashing out at people, especially because of that. Yeah, he drives himself really hard, but he does get support and understanding from Dora, and as he gets to know her, he notes approvingly that she is kind, but not nice. So what does he mean by that? So that is part of why Dora acts as a a good, I suppose I could say, antidote Mm-hmm. Um, for his current state of mind, because Elias is is especially feeling restricted and and um, and put upon by by those rules of polite society uh, that I was talking about earlier, which is that he he sees um, directly interacts with all of this awful stuff, and he can't even bring it up in conversation without people feeling offended. That, mm-hmm. that he dares to bring it up. And so having Dora around, and Dora has less of a filter. Uh, and so she just kind of sees things and talks about them plainly. And that's a huge relief for him. Um, and and seeing her, you know, she cannot, she can't feel short-term emotions, but she can feel long-term emotions. And so seeing all of these horrible things over time she she starts talking about them and asking all of the questions that he's asked himself before, which is, you know, how can people allow this? Why is this allowed? Um, This is awful. And even just her saying these things plainly is a huge deal for him um, because it, you know, there's... There is something to be said for commiseration um, when it comes to to these sorts of things. Uh, even, even just being able to talk about something mm-hmm. in the open helps a lot. Um, and so when Elias says, you know, I, I think he says you're, you're kind, but almost never nice. Um, that's what he's talking about is the fact that Dora does not have the instinct to moderate her speech to go along to get along so to speak Uh, and so she cares what happens to people more than she cares about um, fitting in with polite society and making sure that not to rock the boat Um, yeah and her cousin Vanessa uh, who actually saved Dora when Dora was very young by chasing off Lord Hollowell. Uh, Vanessa did do that, but she's a very nice young woman. And uh, she's also hesitant to become involved in things that she thinks are unsuitable. That uh, 
causes a bit of distance between Dora and Vanessa that they eventually overcome. But uh, Vanessa is also uh, a proper young lady who wants to get married, and she makes the choice of a husband that seems to be wise, but there is something missing for from her relationship in the view of modern readers uh, that we would now consider normal. Tell us a bit about the choice she makes and how uh, she makes that choice. So um, Vanessa is, um, she is the more classic Regency heroine, um, I suppose you might say, mm-hmm. in that she is, um, she's very lovely. Um, she is, uh, she makes people feel good around her and she has some of those characteristics that Dora lacks. Um, and, and she is definitely a foil in some respects to Dora, um, because she does know what to say to get along with polite society. And Mm -hmm. she's very good at making people, um, enjoy themselves around her. Uh, and she has the, um, I, I guess you would say that while Dora is obviously never going to marry someone uh, particularly, like she she's not going to get the um, uh, the eligible bachelor, so mm-hmm. to speak. Dora, Dora is never going in that direction. Um, she She just doesn't have the qualities necessary for that. Vanessa does. And so Vanessa ends up marrying quite well. Um, and she marries, um, uh, I, I suppose you would say, uh, the other, you know, the, the eligible bachelor, the one that the one that several of uh, the uh, the other debutantes would probably want. But while Vanessa has one or two experiences with this man um, that she perceives to be um, wildly romantic, she doesn't really know him very well. And she yeah. does acknowledge this. Um, and so to some extent, she is she is just crossing her fingers and hoping that <laughs> this this image that she has had of him is, you know, even even remotely correct. And that um, there and, and that there is something there that she can turn into a long term marriage. Um, so. It is a it is a marriage in the Regency style, which is which is very advantageous. It has good connections. It has uh, it has money. Um, it has a title. But at the end of the day, Vanessa doesn't know him very well. Yeah, it was always somewhat of a gamble back then, I imagine, to find out what you were really getting. <laughs> well, you know, it depends. Um, it, it, I would say that is far more true for the upper class. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that's historically often true um because the upper class um over uh, over the course of history does tend towards more transactional marriages um not always but like they do tr- tend more in that direction um than the lower classes and so uh while in the regency era you do start having more talk of marrying for love and it does become more of a factor um if you are up a class, you are still really examining um, the uh, the advantages and disadvantages of, 
advantages and disadvantages of each potential marriage, and especially for uh, upper class women who are worried about how they're going to live. Um, because who you marry determines, um, you know, are you going to prosper even even once your husband dies, mm -hmm. which uh, oh, which is a uh, unfortunately a thing that that uh, could often happen is you outlive your husband, um, and then who's going to take care of you, uh, and you also have to worry about who's going to take care of your family. Um, especially your female relatives. And that's something that comes up with regard to Vanessa's mother, uh, who is extremely worried about how she's going to live once her husband dies. Yeah. So let's contrast that with Miss Jennings, who's a governess, and uh, she's a bit older, I imagine, and not under the same pressures. She finds romance too. So how is her romance different and how does it come about well in some respects miss jennings is under um quite a lot of pressure uh and she does explain that so miss jennings is a definitely in, into being a spinster at this point she came from a a large uh, a family of, of many daughters and um while she is um of a certain class um she just her her t too many daughters, not enough support, and she never quite managed to get married. And so she has had to work as a governess. She has had to work as a companion. And she is constantly aware uh, how precarious her situation is um, because that work is, is not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And if she does anything even slightly um, wrong, her employers might toss her out and then she might well end up at a workhouse. Um, and she's very aware of that. Uh, and uh, she, while she is not a, um, a spotlight character, um, her struggle really involves the tension between that awareness of um, how, uh, how easily she could end up in dire, dire economic straits and her desire to do the right thing, which um, she does not always privilege. Uh, and she acknowledges that that sometimes she knuckles under and, and does um, the dubious thing mm -hmm. in order to keep her position. But she is trying to reconcile herself to that by doing other things that she thinks might make up for it. Uh, and so she ends up uh, connecting with another character unexpectedly, um, who uh, I I, uh, I suspect readers uh, will be expecting that character to end up with someone very different. Um, but in fact, um, uh, I, I guess I'll just say that um, you know Miss Jen Miss Jennings ends up with someone that that some readers thought would end up with Vanessa, um, but. While Vanessa probably would have been perfectly happy uh, with this man, um, I don't know that he would have been very happy with her. Uh, I don't because, think so. <laughs> because Vanessa is, um, she, uh, you know, like like I observed, she's the foil to Dora in that she 
does manage to care somewhat about about some of these things that Dora cares about, but um, at the end of the day, um, she just fits in too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Miss Jennings ends up connecting with this man because she sticks out. Um, and I think that's that's really what draws them to each other in the end. Well, Half a Soul uses narrative elements from both traditional fairy tales and a Regency romance genre, but it also subverts those genres at times. Was this intentional? Um, absolutely. Uh, like I said, Half a Soul is is technically a satire, um, and in order to in order to critique things, you have to first know them and, and acknowledge them and make things identifiable as them and then then you can go into subverting them so i consciously chose to make half a soul um to give it several of the classical regency romance elements such as you know we are following a debutante mm-hmm. the poor relative um we are uh following um her relationship with this man who uh, is also, you know, um, important, but disagreeable. Uh, and there is a, a little bit of, I would not call it enemies to lovers. Um, I, I would call it kind of uh, argumentative to lovers, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but there, there are a lot of those tropes there. Uh, and so I did choose to follow um, a more, a, a, you know, a character who, who does to some extent fit in to a Regency romance. But I also wanted to explore how Regency romances utterly ignore a, a good portion of, of actual history. Mm-hmm. Um, they have become, in some respects, uh, a little fantasy genre of their own. Um, based on the things that they tend to focus on, uh, because you never leave high society. You never see what else is going on during the Regency era. Um, and, uh, you know, I will say some Regency romances are better about this than others. But for the most part, you know, I think readers sometimes need to be confronted with the fact that they have gotten a bit too comfortable um, not leaving that fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's really it, it is um, actually quite surprising to me how few people who enjoy Regency stories how, how little they know about um, the lower classes during that period. Um, and you know there are all these glitzy balls and and gowns and um, and politics and marriage positioning and. Readers, I think, to some extent, need to be aware what that costs and who was paying the price for that. Um, and then as far as fairy tales, um, I, I love fairy tales. Um, and, and there are many um, there are many elements in the story that, I, that I've plucked from fairy tales. Actually, the, the whole series. Um, I know, you know, I've, I've pulled in several classical motifs, um, references to certain fairy tales as well. Um, but one of the things I really wanted to subvert about fairy tales as well is that 
Um, not all fairy tales, but many of the ones that, that people are most familiar with um, are very pro-nobility. <laughs> and this mm -hmm. was, you know, a bit by design. Um, I, I think it was the Brothers Grimm when they collated their their you know book of fairy tales. They were they had a very pro kind of royalist slant to them. It's, you're always following a a virtuous princess, you know, who's fallen on hard times, or um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, mostly mostly princesses. There's a lot of princesses, mm -hmm. uh, and because they are noble, they are presumed to be good, and. I really don't feel that that's the case in real life at all. <laughs> right. So I, I did to some extent want to write, um, you know, subvert the same, the exact same things about fairy tales that I, that I wanted to subvert about Regency romances. And, and that is the, the assumption that these people who are, who have titles and money are there for good. Uh, and it's funny how, ingrained that expectation has become for us in both regency and fairy tales in some respects now there are fairy tales that uh, that do not fall into that camp um and i think the the most classic ones would be like the the jack stories um where jack you know whichever version of him gets the better of uh uh of several people by being clever and and uh, and making his own way in the world, but um, the ones the ones that most of us get read, you know, before bed, those are the uh, those are the princesses who um, are just uh, sweet and good, and eventually marry uh, a nice man and and end up living happily ever after. And um, yeah, I, uh, I I just wanted to kind of subtly call into question a lot of those assumptions that we've grown very used to in those genres. And, you know, in a way, uh, gender expectations are upturned a little bit, too, because Elias is very emotional, especially in the beginning. And Dora's, she's not a tactic turn, I wouldn't say that, but she 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 really doesn't show much emotion. And uh, that's something we associate with a you know the laconic male hero or the stoic male hero. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because that was something else that I consciously did as well. Was I wanted, um, I wanted to have a male character who you know he cries at one mm -hmm. point, um, yeah. and I feel like that's super important because, um, in some respects, Elias, um, you know is being affected by by toxic masculinity as well because the only way uh, for men to deal with emotions a lot of the time um, in many of these stories is for them to get angry and the reader will expect that. Mm -hmm. um, and Elias, um, he is angry, but a lot of his anger is born out of frustration at seeing awful things happen to other people and that is uh again you know talking about caregiver burnout that's a form of grief mm -hmm. and dora points out to him because she is in a unique position to do so because she missing her short-term 
emotions um, can often better identify what the long-term emotions are um, because those are all she has. Uh, and so she says to him, you know, are you actually very, um, very hurt? Is this why you're so angry? And he realizes that she's right. And I feel like that's not, um, I feel like a lot of times in, in romances and in, you know, especially in historical romances, um, that anger can be romanticized. And, and I want to be careful here and say that I don't think anger is always bad, especially in the context of injustice. I think mm -hmm. anger can get you places, but constantly being angry and nothing else will wear you out as it has worn him out. And it's also important to be able to acknowledge the complexity of the emotions that are causing that anger um, and to and to be comforted as well, you know, to, to have someone say, um, you're, you're not wrong, um, and you're right to feel hurt, and I will sit with you and be hurt with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's understanding. Well, this is the story about them, Half a Soul, but you've mentioned it's part of a series. What are you working on now? So the Regency fairy tales are technically done at this point. Mm -hmm. There are three of them. There's Half a Soul, 10,000 Stitches, and Long Shadow. Uh, and they all take place in the same uh, setting, uh, which is kind of a magical Regency England, um, though they follow um, loosely connected uh, different characters. And, um, you know, a lot of the characters show up uh, again in different books. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I most recently published um, Small Miracles, which is a contemporary fantasy, um, kind of a, uh, a good omens uh, homage. Uh, and uh, I am currently working on some Victorian fairy tales, which are, you know, just a, a little bit further forward in time. Uh, so they are technically, uh, again, in the same setting as the Regency fairy tales, but they... The, uh, the time period has moved on a bit. And um, the, the Victorian fairy tales, I'm really enjoying working on them because, uh, like I said, I love playing with genre. Mm -hmm. And so while they're going to keep the same whimsical feel and and uh, they're still going to feel like, you know, the same tone in many respects, uh, I am also drawing heavily on Gothic, Victorian Gothic literature for them. And... Um, you know, it's it's fun for me to look at that genre and ask myself, what do I want to do with this genre? Mm -hmm. So they are just a teeny bit darker, um, but uh, but still whimsical. <laughs> well, how do we keep up with your work? What's the best place to follow you? So um, social media comes and goes uh, as we are yes. <laughs> currently discovering. So actually, really the best place to keep up with me um, while I do still have a presence on Facebook, I would say the best way would be to uh, join my newsletter, uh, which you can find at uh, oliviaatwater.com. And I, uh, I try to, uh, I try to email out, you know, once a month, which with fun stuff and what am I working on and 
maybe some of the research I'm currently doing. And obviously, you know, I, I give news about releases and uh, special editions and, and such things through the newsletter. Well, thanks so much for making time for the show today, Olivia. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network and Fantasy. I've been talking to Olivia Atwater about her romantic Regency fantasy, Half a Soul. Join me next month when I interview Kelly Barnhill about the feminist retelling of a Japanese fairy tale. Her book is titled The Crane Husband. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author.